This is Our American Stories. And no matter how many times we've heard the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey teams, still all too amazing to believe heroics at Lake Placid in 1980, we want to hear it all over again. This adventure seems even more unlikely now than it felt decades ago. Whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story, we promise to raise the requisite lumps in the requisite throats, adding new details to an all-too-familiar picture. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big, bad Soviet bear in the United States, in the Olympics. The confluence of events was so extraordinary, it can never happen again. Nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore. Our hostages had been taken, and we couldn't get them back. The Red Army went into Afghanistan. We couldn't get them out. It might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a, an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, had begun to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans, especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home, so in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. He'd always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. 
and he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, Coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bullshit. Eastern coach halls, fixed all politics, and I went through the whole thing. And finally, my father said, you're done? I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping, keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. You get back and thank the coach, get your ass in the locker room, wish your teammates well, and get your ass home. That was my father, God rest his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home, I'm watching this thing unfold. The Americans got hot, and they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me, he says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? Just bang. That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. Tough part would be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviets' communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tridiak. You score on Tridiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice. The goal was to win for the motherland, and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, how many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn. We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And when we come back, the miracle on the ice in 1980, the 1980 Olympic Games, when we continue.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's 1980 performance. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at them. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy, and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. And the Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy, and you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us and ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset. And you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team-building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother, Margaret, to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. You know, maybe if they hate him, they won't have time to hate each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be a coach, but I won't be a friend. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He'd give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Thank you. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. I need you to stick tight with these kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're going to have to play the Norwegians in qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. But playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. 
Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem. We'll work now. Go line. He's standing there with his suit on. And he makes us all get behind the net and on the goal line. And he starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. Ten or twelve of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. And we did them for about 45 minutes to an hour. The rink attendant turned the lights off on us, and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. That moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me in. He's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know you? Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. Assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Herb, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman. Jack O'Callaghan. And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Kurt never did anything on a whim. He planned, and I think he felt like that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more yeah, test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, 
they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun. Have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud him because we didn't see anything like that before. You know, guys hitting now, but you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the big bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And more on this great story from Lake Placid, New York, 1980, our Olympic hockey team. The story continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. Embassy, yelling, Magbar America, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down and Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. 
this morning for the first time. Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day and with the Soviets on American soil they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets, not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Arruzzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33 to 4. The seventh seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2 to 1 late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game and you just got the feeling and of course as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, well it's, it's not to be. With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. He's just trying to get on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. You can always wonder if Billy doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Billy did score. And the Americans in the key game in the first round tie it up. That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia. 
underdogs again in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, they've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys. And look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets. But before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Selk, who scores! Davy Selk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Prescott, he scores! And they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And then the U.S. was able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic because when you have dream teams, you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept wetting their appetite. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader, one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. 
Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, our final segment, the miracle in Lake Placid in 1980. The U.S. Olympic hockey team, their story continues here on Our American Stories. stories and we continue with our final segment in this hour-long celebration of the United States Olympic hockey team's remarkable performance in Lake Placid in 1980. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake guys. To relax them, to keep them focused and also plan and say hey someone's gonna beat those son of a guns. Then on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant, we were meant to be, be here. here. This moment was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. It's your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three, USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in white. I remember for the first five or six minutes, feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. And it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first, and you winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. up ahead to Schneider. The tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. to one. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I stopped to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. I remember seeing Mark Johnson go scooting up. Like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. That made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the period. Right now, the, the 
The Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11-2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world. And the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. That's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The, the feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat on, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. That's a long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score, and I knew that. Too much time, too much time. We can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. Eight and a half minutes to play. The Americans now leading 4-3. It went on forever. The time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 3.53 remaining in the game. 2.25, 2.24, 2.23 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down, and it just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but Mikhailov has the puck. 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Carlemont. McClanahan is there, the puck is still loose. 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The entire U.S. bench cleared. Everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by Weepy State Troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz one of the world's largest supercarriers flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella, Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible 
If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your grave. Then he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Johnson, to McClellan, and he scores! Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big, doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job on that as always, Greg, and I'll never forget that day. If you were around, you didn't either. You knew where you were. There are some events where you just remember where you were. And I was at Paul Biatini's house, co-captain of my team, one of my dearest friends, Died in the World Trade Center, visiting an insurance company on the 100th floor. And what a day that was. The celebration everywhere. And we weren't hockey fans. There had to be 35 to 40 of us at the Biatinis. We all got called in through the quarters. We were calling each other's houses. And then we all got together for that final period. Not a quarter. Clearly, I'm not a hockey fan. But in the third period, everybody gathered at the Biatinis for the final round. This is Lee Habib. A great hockey story, the greatest hockey story here on Our American Stories, the 1980 
dream team, the real dream team, the U.S. Olympic hockey team. American stories, and we love to cover our favorite shows. And two of them are, well, they're not necessarily new. Judge Judy's been out there forever, but we still cover it for you because it's one of the most entertaining hours on television. We get it for an hour here in Oxford, Mississippi. I don't know about you or you are, but most of the country gets it an hour. And then there's Shark Tank, which is running, it seems, never endingly so on CNBC at night. And is the number one rated show on Fridays. It's been Friday nights. It's been around four or five years. And it's terrific. And it just keeps getting better. And we cover a pitch a week when we can. And this past week, Phil and David pitched their product, Physics. Their patent-pending invention that enhances the flavor of any beer. Here's the pitch. Hi, Sharks. I'm Phil Petraka. And I'm David McDonald. We are the founders of Physics from Newark, New Jersey. We're seeking a $500,000 investment for a 4% equity in our company. Wow. Physics is changing the way people are drinking beer at home and on the go. Beer is pretty awesome, and we all know that beer tastes best fresh from the tap. After all, that's how the brewers intended their beers to taste. But in order to reach the masses, beer is sold in cans and bottles worldwide. And unfortunately for us beer lovers, it just doesn't taste as good as it does fresh from the tap. But drab beer is a thing of the past with Physics the world's first and only portable draft beer system that delivers an awesome, better than tap, experience from any can or bottle. Simply place any size can or any size bottle, even up to a 64 ounce growler into the system and insert the feed tube. Pull the tap handle forward and the system will begin to pour the beer under pressure at a controlled rate with no gas, no chemicals, and no replaceable cartridges. And then when you push the handle in the backwards position, behold, the magic of science. I'm excited and I don't drink beer. Here's how it works. Utilizing sound waves, we perfect the density, stability, and texture of the foam, enhancing the aroma and flavor of an authentic draft beer. Wow. (laughs) Here's what the Sharks had to say after a side-by-side comparison of regular beer from a can versus beer that had, on, that had gone through the physics device. Oh, definitely smoother, definitely better. Like night and day. Oh, that's wow. a good beer. Oh, that is good. Is that good? Yeah. And that's from a can. This is good. That's from a can. The foam is really good. The foam 
is the most critical element of the beer drinking experience. Can I get a share of hands, Sharks? Who feels that the physics is better than the other one? I would say this Night definitely advances the Night and day. Night and day. They're Kevin, like two different beers. We always say tasting is believing. Believe hands me, I was down. very skeptical right. when I saw this. Yeah, me too. Mr. Wonderful might be on board with the product, but it's the valuation that's another story. Now, I've looked at the valuation and I say, are you guys out of your friggin' minds? Well, Kevin, we just started shipping product eight oh. months ago, oh. and we've done $3.2 million in sales. Wow. Okay. Not bad, not bad. You just started shipping. How, How much does that cost? This retails for $199. And Phil. what does it cost you to make? $35.88. Oh, wow, good for you. Wow, good market. Really? Phil. Yeah. Really? You bet. Robert, well, he's ready for an offer. I'll give you the 500000 for 8%. Robert, thank you so much for your offer. We believe it's way below market. This is part of our Series A round. Wow, Series A round. Mr. Wonderful? I will give you the same offer, 500000 for 8%. I like this deal a lot. I can move a lot of units, a lot. And here, Barbara Corcoran tells it like she sees it. I'm wildly enthusiastic about the product, but I'm not wildly enthusiastic about you. I feel like you're too slick. You have every answer. And my gut is ringing. There's got to be something wrong. You're too slick for me. I don't trust you, so I'm out. That's going to burn. Just somebody says, I just don't like you. Exactly right. It's not your business. It's not your plan. It's not your product. She's honest. Yeah, yeah it is. And by the way, it's not that you have all the right answers. Yeah. That's what she basically said. Well, sometimes you just don't like someone for whatever reason. Here's the reason that Damon drops out. The main reason that I started to do this show and love this program is all the people that really need help. You don't need any money. You're cash flow positive. Why are you here? Well, we need to scale. There are some retailers that we want to go into that we currently can't because we have channel conflict. So what Give I want to show what I want to show you all is, is what we're anticipating, what we're investing in. You didn't even get to your slides yet. This is our <laughs> this is our next generation product. No, Phil, Phil, I'm I'm just gonna let everybody wait, wait, help. Wait, Phil, I Phil, Phil, so this Phil, is our next Phil, generation Phil, Phil, Phil. Yes, I'm out. Okay. Why did you do that? Wow, Lori, what about you? The great thing for you is I have QVC and TV sales because you need to get out there education. You need people to know what it is. So it's Absolutely. free advertising. So I am also going to give you 500000 for 8%. 8%. Right. Three offers, same offer, three different sharks. Things start to move fast when Mark Cuban throws in his offer. And wait for some man crying at the end of this clip. <laughs> some man crying. I want to make an offer. And I'll even open up to Lori to come in on my offer. So I'll offer you $800,000 for 10%. That valuation is higher than the 500 for 8%. But it gives you more cash so you can go to work faster and you have either one or two sharks. I would like to make a counter to Mark and Laura. I like the deal. All right? I think we'd be great partners. This is our Series A round. If you want to take the whole Series A, we're looking to raise $2 million yeah, at a right. $10 million pre-money valuation. So that's 16%? Yes, 16.67. Well, I want to compete. Okay, I'll do that deal. Done. Oh Damn. my god! It's really, it here, it's really it fabulous. I am not a beer drinker. And, you are uh, you now, baby. Me. Yeah. I am you now. You are now. Yeah. yeah! We did it! We risked it all. Left great jobs. This is the American dream. I'm just so full of emotion right now. It's awesome. <laughs>
It's okay. <laughs> it's okay, man. There's no crying on Shark Tank. Oh, the whole that's the first time ever that the entire Series A round, when thrown out there, yeah. was covered by the Sharks. Jesse, what do you think? Would you give this a shot? You're the beer drinker in the house. Absolutely. Shake up my beer, make it a little more foamy. <laughs> Why not? What the heck? Right. <laughs> this is Lee Habib, Shark Tank. We love it because it's everything we love about America. A bunch of folks trying to get ahead. And some one percenters trying to help some youngsters and some old timers get ahead themselves. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell, and you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago, uh, you've moved from Brooklyn <laughs> to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually oh, consider that deep dish stuff pizza. But that's another thing. That's a, maybe another show. How well, how are I'm things? I'm liking those. I'm liking those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh yeah, with uh, all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh no no um, no doubt. Someone told me don't don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, they, they, look, you, you've come at a good time, an auspicious time. I know. Right? I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll, we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans <laughs> move a lot, and we are probably, as a people, the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think I wonder Finns, if that's true. That I, might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why, do we Why can't we so sit much? still? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> it's meta ADHD. I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about <laughs> ears, Heidi. What on earth? made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president and his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big ears. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld ear. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's on the list and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all like slightly pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show. Yeah, that's true. You know, one day, I'll never forget this. I was at an airport at JFK. Our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who had not seen each other in a while, and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting. And it was fascinating. Well, what we started fixating on was ears. And I don't know why, but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird-looking ears. They are weird-looking. And if you think as we're talking, if you touch the top of your ear, I'm not in front of a mirror, but I have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top. 
and they have all, it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something. They have, all, they have all these little ridges at the top. So I had asked the doctor about that, um, and he just said, you know, basically, you, you would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face, you would hear totally different. Well, because you're just used. Everyone has their own. Um, way of hearing and they you hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face which i'm sure there's been ear transplants done and maybe it was really weird so do, so, so do the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse well they we it doesn't really it's not quite like that it's more like you're you're only born with one pair and so that's just how you hear and so it's not it's already optimized for you for everyone you get used to it so so he was saying if you know if you had this ear transplant you would it would just be super weird and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um, sound signature that we hear so if I took your ears your huge I'm sure ears and slapped them onto my tiny head um, <clears throat> it would be weird because I'm just used to what I've got right right and by the way I love the part of your job Heidi where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field <laughs> and, and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett tell us about oh Dr. Rickett this is the best guy I mean it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody um, and it ended up we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids so he, he specializes in, in optimizing, um, creating these hearing aids. And so he's at Vanderbilt University. And he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scroll, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just, there's 72 comments and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis at the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column, you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They could be dragged off. To, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So, you know, we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do. And and they're, they don't need to hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is you see is what you see on the outside of your head, and that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn, and it sort it points slightly forward. If you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward, and so that's gathering more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's sort it's called shadowing, and so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing 
um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. And then, and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the the sound down and it acts as an amplifier, but it's still in the two to 4,000 Hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilants and vowel sounds and, but it's not, it's not a really high range, a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your, um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of soft, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane. And it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals, signals your brain. And by the way, the, the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, Dr. Yeah. Rick had said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you, ha- you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in and then it's supposed to naturally expel it- itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that You'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning, and my daughter will come to me, and she'll ask me to clean her ears out, and she's only seven. I do, too, and I love it, and maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, That'd be a really... Oh, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah, That'd yeah, be yeah, really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be weird. Fortunately, it's... Uh, it's you can't see us. <laughs> so that, thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning, cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing, Dr. Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can, what you're doing is you're, most of us, like, you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he had, it's totally gross. And he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. he pulled it out and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on Our American <laughs> Stories. Watch out with the Q-tips. It could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. And we'll keep talking about Chicago. And, hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question, why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been.
us singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the sound of Judy Garland's voice. And we're playing it because on this day in history, Judy Garland died in 1969. Many know how sad a life she had. We cannot avoid talking about that. But she also left a mark that no one will ever forget. We start off hearing Judy talk about her career. It's very tough. You don't always keep on top. No one does. I don't. My life's been, my career has been like a roller coaster, you know. It's just, I'm either an enormous success or just a down and out failure, which is silly, you know. Because I, everyone always asks me, uh, how does it feel to make a comeback? And I don't know where I've been. <laughs> I haven't been away. I've been working all the time. Judy Garland was often referred to as the comeback queen. The only thing that changed through time was her measure of success. In her career? Well, it all started when she was a mere two years old. Judy Garland, born Frances Ethel Gunn, began her career in vaudeville with her sisters, a theatrical genre of variety entertainment. She had natural charm, talent, and an unbelievably magical effect on audiences. Much of her audience, in fact, had grown up with her. I mean, she started her career when most kids her age were not even potty trained yet. And by the time Judy was a teenager, she signed with MGM Studios. And for those of you who don't remember which one that is, that's the one with the roaring lion at the beginning of the movie that makes you need to turn your TV down. And of course, with MGM, she is most well known for her starring role in The Wizard of Oz. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. A role originally thought to be for Shirley Temple. The producers considered Shirley Temple. But 20th Century Fox had Shirley Temple under contract and decided they didn't want to loan her to MGM. Good thing for Judy. Although the character of Dorothy was supposed to be several years younger than Judy Garland was. So they put her in pigtails and a corset that flattened her chest and made her appear smaller. But really, where would we be without Judy Garland? I believe it would have been incredibly different had Shirley Temple starred in it. But sadly, her time at MGM is when things began to get difficult. For her 15 years at MGM, she had been in 30 movies and generated $100 million in box office receipts. She was asked to leave MGM in 1950 at age 28 and many know the tragedy that is Judy Garland's life. Judy's daughter, Lorna Luft, talks about what it was like growing up with her mother. It was chaos at times. Sometimes it wasn't great. Sometimes it was awful. And sometimes the highs were really high. And and the celebratory times were just off the chart. And then the depths of despair were pretty drastic also. But throughout it all, I knew that I knew that my parents loved me, so that was a really big comfort to me. I always knew that my mom was out there fighting and doing all she could 
because she loved the three of us and she was the best parent she knew how to be. And what I mean by that is that when you are the breadwinner from the time you're two and a half years old, she supported her whole family. She didn't have the love, spirituality, grounding that she should have had. Her father passed away when she was really young mm -hmm. and then her mother just thought, okay, this is my meal ticket. And she had no grounding, she had no support. Now you gotta remember that my mother was given um, amphetamines and sleeping pills when she was 12 years old, 13, by the studio and by doctors. It was keeping her from gaining weight. All right, now in the 30s, everybody was taking this, these little pills. Riders were taking them, truck drivers were taking them, everybody was taking them, and they didn't think that there was gonna be any problem. But then they started giving them the children so that they could keep them working. That was the tragedy in her life. She wasn't a tragic person, but that was the tragedy in her life, okay? Well, she had this book where she cut out really horrific things, you know, tornadoes tearing, you know, villages apart and things like that, and, that, and she would glue them into this book. And I one day I said, what is that? And she said, well, that's the tragedy book. I said, what is that for? She says, that's when I feel really, if I ever feel bad for myself, I can open it up and say, yeah, I have problems. Look what happened to this person. That she never would let herself feel too bad about herself. They would give her pet pills, then knock her out cold with sleeping pills. And after four hours, they'd wake her up and give her the pet pills again. That's how they got her to work. Sadly, when you start at such a young age, Things are not easy. And although Judy struggled with many relationships in her life, she had one very close friend. Judy had the opportunity to work with Mickey Rooney, a fellow actor around the same age as her. They started several films together and became great friends. Here, Mickey talks about his relationship with Judy. I saw her at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood with her sisters, called the Gum Sisters, from Des Moines, Iowa. And she sang a song that has stayed with me all my life. She sang, Zing with the strings of my heart. was like a breath of spring. I heard a robin sing about her And I just... I couldn't believe it. Later on, we would go to a place called Lawler's, Ma Lawler's Professional School on Hollywood Boulevard. And all of the studio children would go there. I told her how much I thought of her when I had seen her at the Pantages Theater, and she says, oh, thanks, Mickey. She was my sister from the beginning, the sister I never had. I'm an only child, but she was my she was the love I'd searched for. She was born to be one of the greatest performers in the world. She more than acted her lyrics, she lived them. And her oldest daughter, Liza Minnelli, shares a story of what it would be like being known for only one song in particular. Mama rarely, uh, and never around the kids, used profanity. But when she did use it, it was always funny, you know, and it always, she, like, 
Well, we, what happened was we were in someplace crazy like Lake Tahoe. And we went into the ladies' room. There was an old drunk lady in there. And it was just, you know, with <laughs> the sequin straps and one of those names. And um, she said, oh, Judy, you're terrific. You're Judy, you're the rainbow. you got to always remember the rainbow. Then when she went into one of the stalls, the lady knocked on the door. She said, yes. She said, Judy, never forget the rainbow. God, it's helped me through so many crises. And when Mama came back, then she went up to her. The lady went up to Mama and said, I just wanted to say hello. And Mama looked at her and said, hi. Right? Which made me start to giggle. Now, and she's going on and on and on about the rainbow and about this and that and what a dear little girl and how this, this, this. And as we're going out, she had on this incredible long feathered boa somebody had given her as a present, which was way too big for her because she was tiny, you know. She came up to here on me. And um, the last thing that this lady said again was, don't forget the rainbow, Judy. And Mama turned and threw the boa around herself and she said, how can I forget the rainbow? I've got rainbows up my ass. <laughs> and no one can tell a story like Liza Minnelli. Judy Garland's daughter. And when we come back, more on Judy Garland's life on this day in history. In 1969, she died. This is Our American Stories, Judy Garland's story, when we continue. Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Judy Garland died, and we've been listening to her story. Needless to say, a sad one, but we're trying to also highlight some of her better moments. Back to Judy Garland's story. She was a natural entertainer and was dearly loved by the audience. One could say that the audience had fallen in love with the icon that was Judy Garland. People cannot forget how she made them feel. Judy Garland was destined for tragedy while simultaneously being destined for greatness. She saw that greatness in her life for periods at a time. But the anxieties of life in her own mind were incredibly overwhelming, as they are for many people. Her career was all over the place. After she left MGM, she went into radio because no film studios would hire her due to her bad record of not showing up and being difficult. But even amidst all of her struggles and difficulties, she was a natural entertainer. She wasn't spoiled or bratty, or maybe she wasn't necessarily a diva. She was just troubled, like so many of us are. Yet hers was on display for all to see. Her own self-worth was so low that she did not understand the spell she put on people. And for a short while, Garland also had her own variety show, titled The Judy Garland Show, which aired from September 1963 to March 1964. 
Judy, well, she needed to work, wanted to work, and indeed she had to work. On her show, she had wonderful talent, including this wonderful duet with Barbara Streisand, the young rising star barely in her 20s, performs with a musical legend. Forget your troubles, happy days, come on, get happy, I hear again a change. to share this flattering conversation between Judy and Barbara. You're so thrilling, so absolutely thrilling. <laughs> I must say that we've got all your albums at home, you know, and you're so good that I, I hate you. <laughs> I really hate you. You're so good. Oh, Judy, that's, that's so sweet of you. Thank you, you know. You're so great that I've been hating you for years. <laughs> In fact, it's my ambition to be great enough to be hated by as many singers as you. Oh, well, that's, that's a nice thing for you to say. <laughs> I love it. Say more. Say more. Oh, I love you. I love you, too. But, but don't stop hating me. I need the confidence. No, no, no. <laughs> and if you ever get a little, you know, a feeling of lack of security, call me on the phone and sing a couple of notes to me, and I'll give you hatred like you've never gotten. <laughs> People just fell in love with her. There were many times in Judy's life where the world was hoping that she was going to get better. That this would be the time that she finally came out of her struggles. Regretfully, she never made it out of the prison that was her own mind. The words of the song that she was best known for perhaps carried with them a deeper meaning. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind. Half a million dollars in debt at one point, and four failed marriages. Judy was devastated. 
She often looked to men in her life for stability, which is what brought about the four divorces. So many men felt that maybe they would be the one to rescue Judy Garland. And here she shares what it was like never to get over that rainbow. I wanted to believe. And I tried my best to believe in the rainbow that I tried to get over. And I couldn't. So what? Lots of people can't. But I'm not lots of people. I'm me. I'm the one who's had delivered me. Her final marriage was to Mickey Deans, an American musician, entrepreneur, and the fifth and last husband. In an interview from March of 1969, just three months before her death, she talks about how happy she is to be married to him. And she also shares the struggle that her career has been. But it was after she married Mickey, she felt her passion for singing had returned again. Judy shares some of the reflections that she has from her life. In my line of business, uh, in the entertaining, uh, if you're a woman, uh, you can, and you have made a success of yourself by working on, I worked very hard, you know, and I planted some kind of, I was lucky enough, I guess, to plant a star and then people wanted to either get in the act or else they wanted to rob emotionally or financially, whatever, and then walk away. It was always lonely. Lonely and cold. You're either freezing at the top and lonely or else you're surrounded by people who are not truthful, just use you, you know, and you're not, if you're as unaware as I am, and you're a woman, it it can get pretty rough sometimes, but it it isn't that way anymore. I can go home with my husband at night if I do a concert. I don't have to be alone in a hotel room. It's been an interesting life. I, I loved always giving performances to audiences because I think audiences are the most respectable people in the world because they pay money to come and sit in a, for a long time whether you sing well or whether you sing badly they have paid to and sometimes saved money to you know so I have the highest respect and that, but I can't take the audience home with me I couldn't before I don't can't now either but I've got my my love to keep me warm Judy Garland died on June 22nd 1969 It's truly hard to believe that she led such a tragic life behind the camera but her daughter Lorna shares how many felt after her passing It was a few nights after my mom's um, funeral and I got all these, these telegrams from hundreds of thousands of people. One of them I had read was from Frank Sinatra. And it said, there's a new star in the heavens tonight. 
So I went out in the backyard and it was the evening star, which is the only first star that comes out. And I thought to myself, yeah, there is a new star. And she'll always be there. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We must be over the rainbow. Great job on that, Faith. The life of Julie Garland. She died at the way too young age of 47. And actually at the peak of her powers. Anybody who I know had seen her at that time was viewing one of the great song and dance people in Broadway history, in stage history. And as you hear over and over again here on Our American Stories, our current story is the tragedy that artists befall. And you know, when she said, people will just use you, that's fame, and that's the consequence of fame. And so when thinking and talking about stars who end their lives, drugs, bad behavior, pray for them, and just remember, we rely on them and we're entertained by them, and they're human beings who suffer, I believe, more than the rest of us. This is Our American Stories, the life of Judy Garland, her story. She died on this day in history in 1969.